and welcome to the March 2019 CMO Report for Shady Grove Medical Center. I am Dr. Patsy McNeil, the CMO of Advanced Healthcare's Shady Grove Medical Center. Let's get started. Welcome to this podcast edition. Uh, The extra content for this particular month's version will be an interview at the end of this podcast with Dr. Natalie Kentakis to talk about the Shady Grove Palliative Care Program. And it's a very interesting interview and definitely worth the listen. The content for this March CMO report is also available via email to all the medical staff members of Shady Grove. You will receive the email about the same time that this podcast is released. First up, the Physician Lounge updates. Starting on March 18th, there will be frozen meals in the after hours refrigerator for that Physician Lounge. This is an additional attempt to provide after-hours food for providers who work. Uh, as everyone knows, our hospital is a 24-hour op- uh, operation, and we want to make sure that everyone has the nutritional needs that they they want fulfilled while they're they're here. So frozen meals will be there. These are meals that you can unpack and put in the, the uh, microwave and get uh, hot hot food. This is in addition to the packaged lunch lunch leftovers that will be present there uh, and the usual staples in that lounge of bread and peanut butter and and whatever little other snacks can be available such as fruit. Always please remember that that lounge is for physician use only. It's not meant for family members or community members. It is purely the physician uh, medical staff lounge. White Oak Medical Center, our sister hospital, Washington Adventist Hospital, uh, is of course due to open a new facility uh, in White Oak uh, uh, August 25th. Um, The Physician Relations Department is inviting everyone to tour the facility on April 11th. At 5 p.m. there'll be light refreshments, 5.30 to 6.30 a walking tour. Uh, You can RSVP to Kim Hill or Janet Lutz. Kim Hill, you can RSVP at khill at adventisthealthcare.com. Her phone number is 410-227-9951. Alternately, you can RSVP to Janet Lutz at jlutz at adventisthealthcare.com. The phone number there is 301-221-8520. For more information about these tours, go to www.adventistwhiteoak.com. Just a note about our behavioral health side of our Shady Grove Medical Center. In the past, prior to August 1, our behavioral health uh, institution was a separate hospital. As of August 1, they are merged fully into Shady Grove Hospital. We are geographically just a walkway apart, um, but structurally and on paper, we are one institution. I say this to keep in mind that um, Although the technical aspects of the integration have gone very well, the full impression that the facility is now completely a part of Shady Grove Medical Center tends to lag amongst providers. Uh, Remember that, although in another building, it's truly a full inpatient division of Shady Grove and should be treated as such. Consults, emergencies, and other aspects of care that occur there must be completed and considered as if the division is within the main walls of the hospital. Next, empathy training. Empathy training is ongoing currently at Shady Grove. Um, It is uh, really a robust program. The course is 90 minutes uh, and it's mandatory for all staff at Shady Grove. Um, It's heavily encouraged and will likely become mandatory for our physician staff at Shady Grove. 
with the pressures of workload and burnout and the EMR, we're not looking to add more to your responsibilities, but this 90-minute class has been proven to in, uh, improve the experience of those that take it when they're interacting with patients and improve the experience, obviously, of our patients as well. Studies show that the time physicians complete medical school, by the time they finish medical school, their capacity for empathy uh, erodes significantly. That erosion begins about the third year when clinical rotations end and does not recover often for many. And so just to make your work experience better when interacting with patients, we're looking to make sure that everyone gets empathy training. Um, this empathy training is named in their shoes. The idea is for you to walk in the shoes of different types of people and get the experience so that you understand why someone will come to our hospital in fear, uh, understand their experience and point of view uh, as well. Sign up online now at http colon slash slash signup.com slash go slash bh capital b u a b zero. So refer to the print copy of the SEMO report for that ability to sign up in that link there. Next, note that there's an extortion scam going on as targeting DEA registrants. Uh, the DEA is aware that registrants are receiving phone calls and emails by criminals identifying themselves as DEA employees or other law enforcement personnel. These individuals mask their phone number with a resultant display being an 800 DEA registration support number. They seek money and threaten to suspend your DEA license number. Be aware that the DEA would never communicate with you by, form, by phone. The federal government, uh, as we all should know, communicates by mail um, and not email and generally not uh, by phone either. So keep this in mind and please report any activity uh, to the DEA diversion uh, division that's uh, found on the page that's www.deadiversion.usdoj.gov. It's the Department of Justice red website. So you can go there and uh, tell if this happens. This is an international scam that's getting a lot of traction, so it's important to know that, uh, that, that this is very, very out there and we need to be alert. Vaccinations. In the news right now, there are a lot of, lot of uh, news stories about vaccinations from an individual young man on the, young boy, on the West Coast who didn't get tetanus and uh, vaccination and end up with the old-fashioned term is lockjaw but got tetany in the ICU for 57 days uh, and of course there's measles going on as well out on the west coast it's only a matter of time before that reaches here lots of times we assume that uh, either children we're seeing or alternately adults we're seeing are fully vaccinated this is very much so not an adequate assumption to make make sure when you're seeing your patients that you make sure that they are fully vaccinated, that you check and make sure that they have been skipping their vaccinations. This is a public health issue, and this is, of course, a individual issue as patient uh, caregivers as well. I'm going to highlight our NICU uh, and the work of the director, Mike Sukumar. There, Dr. Sukumar and his team have really done amazing work, and we have a world-class NICU. There's data that's shown in the paper copy, once again, of the CMO report, but just know that they are performing at world-class outcomes with initiatives surrounding uh, nosocomial infections and mortality. 
due to early deaths as well as mortality in general. They have incredibly low rates and that is a site that is definitely one to be proud of. We're trying to include medical legal risk tips in all of our CMO reports that we give. The last month and this month, we have been focusing on consent. Uh, I want everyone to be educated about things that are relevant to their day-to-day care. So when there's a patient with uh, DNR, DNI in place, but with no clearly designated health proxy, what occurs when that patient really becomes ill? When a patient lacks the capacity to consent on his or her own behalf, what is the appropriate legal way to progress? So here's a scenario to think about. 87-year-old Mrs. Jones is a self-designated DNR, DNI, and a candidate for comfort measures. She has lost the capacity to make her own decisions. She has a DNR, DNI in place, as stated, but the patient has three adult children, none of whom are healthcare proxies or who are otherwise designated healthcare decision makers. Two of the children consent to comfort care measures. The third is not. What is the appropriate decision? The rule of thumb is that the law honors the patient's intent. In this case, since none of the patient's children bear any health care proxy standing, the clinicians can honor the terms of the patient's DNR, DNI to assess from a clinical standpoint whether the patient is due for a transition to comfort care. I have been talking about RL solutions and incident reporting uh, for our physicians or from the point of view of our physicians. Currently at Shady Grove uh, and Advanced Healthcare in general, every incident report that's put in through the RL Solutions software that the hospital has uh, is reviewed within 24 hours. This is an outstanding look. Our quality department is very dedicated to making sure that all incidents in the hospital that are of concern to the people giving care there are examined closely and are taken care of appropriately. However, Traditionally, the vast majority of these reports have been put in by nursing staff, which is great. Our, nurses staff are, our nursing staff is fantastic and so glad that they do this work uh, with us and for us. Having said that, however, it is important that the point of view of physicians in our hospital is also heard. And unless incident reports are stated or known, these are not translated into action by a quality department. So, once again on the paper form, there is a walkthrough of how to put an incident report in. The incident reports, the system is very um, cumbersome, I will admit to that, but it is worth doing. And we are looking at ways to make the interaction or interface easier. So that's coming soon, but please try to put in incidents to the RL Solutions uh, software whenever possible. If you have another incident or other problem and just don't have the time to put in an incident report, feel free to email me directly at pmcneil at adventishealthcare.com. However, the preferred method definitely is the um, RL Solutions, which can be accessed through the Citrix portal, uh, which we often you know, use to do our medical documentation um, or EMR. Last thing I'm going to talk about is Vocera Secure Texting. Have you signed up? Uh, Vocera Secure Texting is completely live for all members of the Shady Grove medical staff. At last count, less than 400 of the 1,400 or so eligible physicians had signed up. If you have not signed up, an additional email with instructions will be pushed to you. Uh, if you do not 
have or understand or can find that email, please call the help desk at 240-826-6440 for aid. Note, the secure texting, this is a method that through an app that you download on your smartphone, you can interact with the actively working um, folks within the hospital. So if you're an office doc and you have a patient that's admitted to the hospital, if you sign up for Vicera texting, you have the opportunity to securely text in a HIPAA secure faction back and forth about your patient with the uh, hospitalist or ER doc directly taking care of the patient. Uh, photographs can be submitted this way as can x-rays, EKGs. So this is a HIPAA compliant secure way to communicate. Uh, and as time has gone on, our communication in the hospital always needs improving. This is a technology-based way to make that even easier to enhance to its utmost our patient care. Um, for those of you who work within the hospital, this secure texting uh, is not to replace paging for on-call physicians. Uh, the alert sound on the app is relatively quiet, not meant for emergent scenarios. Um, so just note that those on call are still held to the standard of answering pages for their on-call uh, agreement, and that this is the best way to be in contact with, with the on-call physicians that we have. Well, that's the end of the CMO podcast for this month. I uh, hope you enjoyed listening. To follow and to finish will be the interview with Dr. Natalie Contacos. Stay tuned. Okay, today we're going to have an interview with Natalie Kentakis. Dr. Kentakis is the Director of Palliative Care Services here at Shady Grove Medical Center. We're going to get to know her and get a little, to know a little bit more about palliative care uh, in general. So we're going to start off with some introductions, doing a little bit of an aid it, and I want to know a little bit about your origin story. Where are you from? Where did you grow up? Where are you educated? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure, it's, it's, it's great to do this. Um, so I am from the Great North. I'm from Canada, so I grew up in the Toronto area. Um, and um, I went to medical school at the University of Toronto and then did my training in other parts of Ontario, which was a family medicine residency and then a palliative medicine fellowship. Okay, so how did you get um, segued from family medicine, I guess, into palliative care? What, why, why did that become your focus? So I think one of the reasons which led me to family medicine was really whole, whole person care. So really focusing not only just on the physical aspects of, of someone's care, but also on the non-physical aspects. So in terms of emotional, spiritual, etc. And then I was really fortunate that during my residency, most of us did a month in palliative care. We could actually take a month off of our internal medicine rotation. So I saw it as a wonderful opportunity to be able to spend a little bit more time with patients and their families and really get to know them. And I just, um, I just really latched onto it. So instead of doing the usual radiology rotation where you kind of sit around and not have to <laughs> work that hard, you are a doctor's doctor, Natalie Kandaga. So that's, that's great. So let's talk about palliative care. Because um, I think there's a big misconception where people hear palliative care and immediately they think of really hospice care. They overlap those a lot. So kind of outline for us what palliative care is and outline for us what the difference is between palliative care and hospice care. So we can be very clear on how best to utilize both, frankly. Sure. So palliative care is very broad. 
So it is serious illness care. So it's any serious illness. So that could be cancer, heart disease, lung disease, etc. And we just pay particular attention to someone's symptoms in order to improve their quality of life and to reduce the stress of that illness that it has on them and their loved ones. There is no prognosis attached to it whatsoever. So it can be delivered for anyone at any age. So older, younger people and at any stage of their illness. And there's actually studies that show that if you inject some palliative care principles in someone's care earlier on in their illness, they do better. They live better and they even live longer. Hospice is a particular program. Um, it's a benefit and it's specifically for patients who we think have a prognosis of six months or less. So that is um, an interdisciplinary team. Usually, usually that cares them where, where they are at home. Um, and that's just fo focused for more of the latter stages of someone's illness. So the big thing is palliative care, there's no prognosis attached to it. And hospice is particular benefit for the, la for the last six months of someone's life. Okay. So, so when I think about palliative care, now tell me if I'm off base completely, but things I wouldn't have thought of before. For instance, would it be palliative care if you, know, you had a woman who was in her 30s and had just horrible hyperemesis? and just dis, you know, disabling hyperemesis. So I've seen those women in the emergency department where they are just, they have to get a pick line and they're, they're just miserable. Is that palliative care or is that just kind of medical care and not quite all the way into palliative care? Yeah. That, that's a broad kind of example. Right, so I would think that's a little bit more medical care. Okay. Right? So that's more, that's not necessarily attached to a illness that we would expect over time would get worse. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So that's, that's a difference. So I wanted to make sure that that was a little bit clear. All right. Now, um, you are a popular uh, commodity here at Shady Grove. I know that you and you have um, an NP working with you. Who's your NP that works with you? What's her name? So her name is Nateo Bassi Uday. Uday. Some okay. people call her NT for short. Okay, that's yes. that's a lot easier. <laughs> that's a lot easier. But I know you all get plenty of work. Uh, you you start the day busy, end the day busy, knowing that you have a next full day coming at, coming at you. So, for folks who are inpatient, let's start there. Who believe that they need a palliative care consult? What kind of preliminary work would you suggest they do so that when you get there or NT gets there, they, you know, they're, they're, the patient is primed and you're primed to do the maximum that you can do for that patient in the most expedient way and frame of time. Sure. So I think one thing is to let them know that you are consulting palliative care and to make sure that they understand what that is. Because I think a lot of people, just as we were talking about earlier, when they hear it, yeah. they get worried. Okay. Just say in terms of someone helping with your symptoms, care planning, etc. Um, another thing that's helpful is just to check to see what someone's understanding is of their illness and if they're not capable of understanding standing, if they have dementia, etc., to see what their healthcare proxies understanding is of their illness. And another thing that's really helpful is to know whether or not the patient has advanced directives, who's in their family, who would you know, who is their healthcare proxy or power of attorney and how that's come about. And just setting those things up ahead of time is extremely valuable. So would you advocate for having whoever the healthcare proxy is in the room with the patient during your initial assessment, or would you prefer to have that as a secondary look? How, I guess it may be depending on what kind, of case, what kind of case it is, but how would you like to have the family interact or the proxy, whoever that may be, interact? Yeah, so, so if someone is, 
so usually when I first meet somebody, if it's a patient who is, you know, who's able to understand things, usually my first interaction is rather informal and just to get to know somebody. And then it's sometimes just say, hey, can we set up a time? We can talk about more things. And I leave it up to sometimes, you know, to a patient because sometimes patients, a lot of times they don't want necessarily anybody right. to be involved. So just leave it open and to see who they would want to be there for, for, some, for some difficult conversations if we need to have those. Okay. So what kind of cases should trigger a thought, you know, this might be a great case for palliative care? Now, beyond terminal cancer or beyond, um, what kind of cases would you like to see or would you think that you could be the most impactful for? Sure. So beyond, so beyond cancer, some of them are in terms of patients who have congestive heart failure, COPD, et cetera, and they're being, to, they're being admitted to a hospital multiple times. Kind of that revolving door situation or sometimes they go to hospital, come home, back to hospital, or they go to rehab, et cetera. So trying to figure out, is this really, is this really what they want, right? Is there anything else that we can do for them, both here in the hospital and outside of the hospital, to try and make things better so that they are less likely to come to the hospital? Other situations are sometimes if there's decisions coming up about whether or not, for instance, to put in a peg tube or a feeding tube, is that so that that sometimes prompts a discussion so that people really understand the pros and cons of doing that okay okay um give me an example give us a pa- uh, example of a patient um that you feel like you did maximum aid personally with in applying palliative care to their their case so so one that comes to mind is one that's actually quite different from the usual patients that i see so this was a patient who was admitted to the hospital and, and, and she had breast cancer, but it was not metastatic. So it was in the rather earlier stages of her illness. Um, but she, um, she, had some, she had some uncontrolled symptoms related to her chemotherapy. So she came into the hospital um, and it was actually one of the nurse's suggestions that I get involved. Um, and so um, fortunately, um, we, were ma- we, we managed to get her symptoms under control and then make some suggestions for the next time that she would get chemotherapy. So that would help um, with her treatment and her, her ability to tolerate that, that treatment. Um, and the other reason why I felt that it was, that, that there was an impact here was that um, you know, it was a case that kind of showed in terms of what palliative care can be beyond care for someone in the latter stages of their illness. And also I thought it was, um, I thought I really commended nursing for picking up on it. Yeah, So I, that was, is. I was really proud of them. Nurses are definitely our front line. Yeah. They're definitely our front line. Um, let's turn a little bit to the outpatient setting and palliative care, which I know almost nothing about, truthfully. So tell us about, you know, we have a lot of folks who might be listening to this interview who have outpatient offices with a range of different patients, everything actually from pediatric to geriatric. Um, how should they be interacting with or thinking about palliative care versus hospice care? Once again, whole, totally different thing. So I think what they should be, something that they can consider is just having some general conversations ahead of time. So I think we all know that it's important to think about and to talk about what our preferences are in our care, what we want, what we don't want, what kind of outcomes we would find unacceptable, what are our worries, what are our anxieties, and um, 
to do some of these things ahead of time, um, I think would be um, really helpful so that um, when down the road, when time, co time comes for some really difficult conversations, people are a little bit more ready for that. Mm -hmm. um, you don't have to start from scratch. So there are some resources out there. So um, a wonderful, um, you know, wonderful program that I like is called the Conversation Project. You can just Google Conversation Project mm -hmm. and they have a whole bunch of guides there to help um, people um, think about these things and to talk about them to, our, to, to their families. And I would suggest even that we do this as well. I will be, actually. Right? <laughs> yeah. We do this as well for ourselves and for our loved ones. And I know every year during Thanksgiving around that time, uh, you know, this, this group kind of says, now it's, the, you know, it's a good time to do this. Yeah. Yeah. Preparation is key, though, because to have these conversations when you're the most frightened, most in pain, your family is the most scattered, it's really not ideal. It's before then that that is, that is definitely ideal. Um, so another question leading off from that, what do you know about pediatric palliative care? I, I don't know anything about that either, <laughs> so at all. <laughs> so I'm going to put that out for our pediatricians who are listening as well. Yeah, so it's in some ways it's very similar to a you know adult palliative care. Um, so it's it's still looking at you know how do we make you know kids' lives and they have who have serious illnesses how do we make how do we make it better? Are they able to function? And also, you know, sometimes for them to have a say in terms of you know what's important to them and what th what they would like. So um, I used to be a hospice medical director, um, so we would, we would see children, and that was more in terms of the, you know, the, the hospice setting. But many of those kids, too, had actually prolonged hospice days because sometimes their illnesses are a little bit different. Right. Interesting. Very interesting. Now, let's talk about pain control. It's always kind of uh, a topic right now that's very difficult because of the people who are opioid abusers, but with palliative care, uh, you know, pain control is really central, I would think, to what you do often. So um, just talk about the importance of pain control in these palliative care patients uh, in general. Yeah. So the better that we're able to manage someone's pain, whether that is using uh, medications and different types of medications or using other sorts of means, you know, the better that they do. So it's really important to take um, pay extra attention to this. So because if pain gets in the way of your eating, your sleeping, your moving, right, you're gonna be deconditioned and you won't do as well. So um, I think sometimes we get lost in that, that sometimes we're so focused on treating an illness and we forget about how people are doing, right? right? And then it's like, oh, then we're gonna make you comfortable later on. I think we should keep people comfortable regardless of what's going on. They can engage with people better when right. their pain is not a complete distraction along with the fear of whatever disease they have as well. So I, I totally agree with that. Um, what do you see as the biggest barrier to providing the best palliative care at Shady Crow? I think the biggest barrier is, again, just these misconceptions, yeah. right? So I think that, um, you know, people are, you know, people and their families are suffering. And I think sometimes, you know, we just wait too late, you know, to... Um, to talk about things. Yeah. Um, so I think just, you know, trying to do thing, these things earlier on, I think is, is you know, is, uh, you know, that, that's the biggest barrier. Okay, yeah. that's, that's something we all need to keep in mind. All right, what inspires you to do what you do? I know how hard you work. You are uh, somewhat like James Brown, the hardest working person show business here. You, you really, really hard work hard. So what do you find inspirational about what you do with all the, the, the patients you interact with? and? Uh, how uh, your long days and longer evenings 
you know, documenting and all that. Just tell me how, why you keep going. It's, I think it sounds kind of corny, but um, I think what inspires me the most is just, you know, the people that I meet. And um, so patients and their families and just, um, you know, the, their strength and their, and their humility. And um, their just ability just to, um, how they open up. Um, and also, I think sometimes um, when you spend time with people, you you really meet some really interesting people. It's true. And um, I think um, every day I come you know I come away with another story of something, someone really interesting. Really amazing. I mean, people are at their most compelling and interesting when they're going through the toughest times, and so it's a privilege to take care of people mm-hmm. uh, in an acute care hospital period, um, particularly the patients you take care of. It's it's interesting to see people go through that stressful and arc of of life for sure. So we're going to close there, actually, and I think this has been an interesting interview. I certainly have learned a lot about palliative care, uh, and um, Dr. Natalie Kantakis, you know, someone you definitely need to know, especially when you have a patient in distress. So we're going to end there. Well, that concludes our 2019 March CMO podcast, and uh, for those of you who are medical staff, I, Patsy McNeil, will see you around our hospital. I will add one last thing in thought of palliative care uh, and Dr. Kantakis' very hard work. Um, There is a palliative care discussion series. Um, The next one is actually on March 22nd, Friday, March 22nd from 11.30 to 1 p.m. in the Dogwood Room. It's on the main floor, the first floor. Um, We'll be screening a truly amazing award-winning film, Endgame. Uh, which follows visionary medical practitioners who are working on the cutting edge of life and death and are dedicated to changing our thinking about both. Bring your own lunch, popcorn and water, available to all. Have a great March, everyone.